Hi, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Laura Marney. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'd like to welcome Marina Levitka. Uh, I'll just have a few housekeeping uh, notes, first of all. The emergency exits are here and here, so if there's an emergency, go out of one of those. Um, if you haven't already turned off your mobile phone, could you turn it off just now, please, if anyone's forgotten? I usually am always the culprit. <laughs> um, and then when we're finished, um, I'm going to, with your permission, Marina, whisk Marina out and <laughs> out through, the, through those doors into the, the signing tent next door. So it's just because we have to get this venue cleared for the next event coming. So I'll, I'll sort of whisk her smartly out. And if, you, if you'd like to come to the book signing, we'd love to see you uh, next door in the signing tent. Um, okay, so I'll just give you a, a brief um, introduction to Marina. Um, Marina Levitska is of Ukrainian origin, and she was born in a refugee camp in Germany during World War II. Can you believe that? I can't believe it. After, after World War II, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, it says here during. I don't know. No, 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 that's wrong. about 100 no, no. years old. Don't worry, it's not as bad as... I went I did a reading in Scarborough and somehow they'd got it wrong and they put World War One. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's jaws really dropped. <laughs> and it took me a while to pick up, you know. <laughs> I'm not very good at my World Wars. Well, most of the people here were born after World War Two, anyway, I hope. <laughs> um, she studied at Keele University and has written a number of books of practical advice for carers of the elderly, published by Age Concern, and she lectures in media studies at Sheffield Hallam University. Her debut novel, I'm sure you will all know it well, A Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian, won the 2005 Bollinger Everyman Wodehouse Prize at the Hay Literary Festival, the Waverton Good Read Award, the Saga Award for Wit. It was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize and shortlisted for the Orange Prize. It's been translated so far into 29 languages and sold over 100,000 copies. Oh, more than that. Well, more than that. <laughs> <laughs> over, okay. Um, well, I did say over, yeah. Her second novel, Two Caravans, was shortlisted for the 2008 Orwell Prize for political writing and has to date sold well over 250,000 copies. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Her most recent novel, We Are All Made of Glue, the one that we're going to be hearing from today, was published just in July and is a warm comedy based on the friendship between two women, Georgie and Mrs Shapiro. As their friendship develops, secrets and mysteries unravel in a wide historical sweep across decades, continents and political divides. It is as accomplished in its grasp of global politics as it is in its small domestic stories. It's a fantastic read if you haven't read it yet. In The Independent, Amanda Craig says of We Are All Made of Glue, Levitska's novel is a pleasure, written with eccentricity and zest. I think I have to agree with that. Kasia Body says in The Telegraph, she is a very gentle moralist. Her genuine interest in and empathy for her diverse characters, especially the elderly, allows an accessible way into a complex range of historical and political situations. And Simon Baker in The Spectator described it as a big, bustling novel told with enthusiasm by a narrator who's warm, winningly disaster-prone and crucially believable. Well, if the title didn't give it away, this is a novel about glue. It's also about Maggie Thatcher versus the miners, survival through the Holocaust, loss of family, finding family, Armageddon, friendship, scheming estate agents versus caring social workers, about cats, about writing bonkbuster novels, about faithful wives and faithless husbands, about provenance, about Nazis versus Jews, Jews versus Palestinians, about friendship, about the ties that bind us. It's about glue. And here to read from this wonderful sweeping novel is Marina. Thank you. Gosh, for the introduction. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Um, I hope I'm going to be able to read or not. I was at the Ukrainian club and they kept me going for quite a long time there with um, a lot of reading and also Irish dancing above. So can you, can you all hear me? Um, I'm going to start... Um, because this is one of the more, see, I think one of, one of the things about this book, in a way like all of my books, is that they're kind of, well, I like to be entertaining, um, but they're also quite serious. So I'm going to start with one of the serious bits, um, and then we'll get back out of the way and um, be a bit more entertaining. 
And this is um, part of the wide historical sweep. It's part, it um, tells the story um, of one of the characters in the book who's a Palestinian and um, how he comes to fit in with the story and especially with the bit I'm going to read next. Um, you'll have to find out for yourselves. But he's called um, Mr. Ali um, and he's a handyman and he gets to know the narrator because he's, he's working on Mrs. Shapiro's house. And it describes events which took um, part in place in Palestine in 1948. Mustafa Al-Ali, the man I knew as Mr. Ali, was born in Lod in 1948. This much he knew. He didn't know his mother's name, nor that of his twin brother, nor even his exact date of birth. But he reckons he was a few months old on the 11th of July, 1948. Why, what happened then? Have patience, I will tell you. Lod was at that time a busy town of some 20,000 inhabitants that had grown up over centuries in the fertile coastal plain between the mountains of Judea and the Mediterranean Sea. But that summer, the summer of the Nakba, the town was filled up with refugees from Jaffa and smaller towns and villages all up the coast. That morning in late July, Sorry, that late morning in July, a battalion with mounted machine guns suddenly rolled into town at high speed. At first, the local population thought it was the Jordanian army come to defend them. But all at once, the machine guns let rip, barrels blazing, bullets flying in all directions. Men, women and children were gunned down. Some 200 fell and died in the streets. Others fled in flight. As dawn broke, soldiers ran from house to house, banging on the doors with their rifle butts and ordering those inside to leave at once. Go, go to King Abdullah, the soldiers shouted. What they mean is, get out of this country and leave it for us. Go to Jordan, flee to any Arab country that will take you. You never heard about this? I shook my head. Go on. The terrified population, expelled from their homes, grabbed what they could and fled. The Al-Ali family, the women and children, for their father had disappeared, were dragged out of the house onto the street, given only a few minutes to grab their valuables. They were marched to the outskirts of the town, the soldiers firing shots in the air to make them run. Go, run to Abdullah in Jordan. As they passed through a cordon, soldiers searched them, stripping of them of their possessions. Ahead of them, one of their neighbours, recently married, who quibbled about surrendering his savings, was shot dead before the horrified eyes of his new bride. After that, no one protested. Run, run! The soldiers fired volleys of shots above their heads, but the asphalt road was barred, and they were forced to make their way eastwards across the stubbly, newly harvested plains. By now, it was midday, and the heat was intense. The sky so blue and hard it seemed to glimmer like lazurite. In the coastal plain, the temperatures in July can easily reach 40 degrees. There was no shade at all, only a few prickly thorn bushes growing among the rocks. Beyond the plain stretched a long hill and they could see a miserable procession of their fellow townspeople already stumbling towards the stony horizon. Mr Ali paused. He sat back in his chair and stared at the sky, his eyes wrinkled up as though to keep out too much brightness. Each time I remember this story, my heart turns into stone. Go on, I said. The Al-Ali family joined the procession, walking across the fields, stepping out briskly at first, buoyed up by their anger and confident that this was just a temporary situation, that soon the Arab armies would drive out the intruders and they would be able to return to their home. After a couple of hours, as they mounted what they thought was the crest of a hill, only to find another steeper one stretching out ahead of them, their hearts sank. They had brought so little water. Who would think of carrying water instead of silver and gold? All around them, other families were sitting too exhausted and dehydrated to move, while others abandoned the possessions they could no longer carry and plodded on up the hill in the searing sun. The third day of the march was the worst. The women's sandals were already falling apart. Their feet were bleeding and swollen. Nettish thorns and blue field thistles snagged at their skirts and legs. Go, said his mother to her oldest son, Tariq. Go on ahead and find us some water to drink. Maybe there is a village up there with a well. But there was no water. All along the way, people were fainting from thirst and exhaustion. On a rocky scree, the boy came across a woman staggering under the weight of a huge bundle. 
two watermelons, it looked like. And he thought, if she drops them, I'll pick them up and take them back to my mother. But as he grew closer, the woman sank to the drunk ground and he saw that she was carrying two babies. Help me, brother, she pleaded. My boys are too heavy for me. I cannot carry them. The boy hesitated. He was only 14 years old and he already had his mother and sisters to look after. But it was clear this woman was not going to make it. Take just one of them, she said in a voice that was barely more than a whisper. Tariq looked at the babies. They looked terribly red and wrinkled, their eyes screwed shut against the light. How could he choose? Then one of them stirred and opened its eyes, its dark bright eyes which seemed to stare straight into his. The woman, seeing him waver, wrapped the baby in, his, in her shawl and thrust it into his arms. Go on ahead. Don't wait for me. Go, I'll meet you in Ramallah. That was you, the baby in the bundle? He nodded. A door opened, and from the inside of the house, I heard the sweet jangle of Arabic music and the noisy patter of daytime television. Then Mrs. Shapiro appeared on the doorstep, wearing her dressing gown and her Lion King slippers. Will you make, take a coffee, Midas? Mr. Ali didn't reply. His eyes were fixed somewhere else. My name is Mustafa he said quietly. It means one who is chosen. My brother Tariq told me this story. Did he tell you what happened to the other baby? I asked. Mr. Ali shook his head. He told me only that the soldier who shot the bridegroom had on his arm a tattoo, a number. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll leave that section there and... Um, just to show you the power of glue, I'll read you something completely different, and I'll, I'll leave it up to you to work out um, how, how the passage I've just read you and the one I'm going to read you um, fit together. I'll tell you that, that the narrator is called Georgie, and she befriends the old lady, Mrs. Shapiro, um, who, who is a, a neighbor. She, she looks like a bag lady. She you know, walks around with all her worldly goods in a pram. She lives in this um, crumbling, derelict house with seven cats. And... Um, what Georgie soon finds is that, in fact, there are various sort of vultures hovering around Mrs. Shapiro. Um, one of them is a social worker who's determined to get her out of the house and into an old people's home. And there's also a couple of rather sleazy um, estate agents, um, one of whom is called uh, Mark Diabello. And for the way that these happen, um, Georgie ends up um, having an affair with him. Um, and so I'm going to read you um, one of those sections. And he comes to visit her, and we can see that he's actually after the house. But, um, you know, Georgie's a, a woman who's been abandoned by her husband, and she's looking to see what the world has to offer her out there. He was stirring the sugar into his coffee, tinkling the spoon against the china, and looking at me with those very coloured eyes. I could feel myself melting inside. It'd be interesting to sneak a look at the deeds, Georgina. Do you know where they're kept by any chance? I haven't a clue, I said, squeezing my tea bag sexily and fishing it out with a provocative little flick of the spoon. It might be possible to find out from the land registry, he murmured. He finished his coffee and stood up, leaning in the doorway, smiling darkly. Shall we? He led, I followed. You said you were going to show me your poems, I said, teasing. But to my surprise, he produced a slim cream envelope from the pocket of his jacket. I've written one specially for you, Georgina. The envelope was slightly warm and curved to the contours of his body. I opened it curiously as he undressed me. There was a poem written out by hand, the letters squat and confident on the creamy paper. I wandered through the city streets. My heart was burdened down with care. And then I saw thee standing there with raindrops sparkling on thy hair. Sweet Saint Georgina, thou art the dragon slayer of my heart. Tell me thou love me, for I know we'll never be apart. I couldn't stop myself, I cringed. Then I covered it up with an embarrassed kiss. Mm, that's lovely, I said. Glad you like it, sweetheart. Have you got the... the... I fumbled in my bedside drawer for the shameless accessories and slipped them on. He checked the gusset. 
He tightened the satin handcuffs. Thank heavens for Ikea's slatted headboards. Where would we be without them? <laughs> Thought the shameless woman as she sighed and lay back on the pillows. But the poem, the ugly doggerel, jangled in my head. I tried to abandon myself to shamelessness, but it was no use. Sweet scent Georgina, tell me thou love me. And to think I had once dreamed of having an entourage of poet toy boys. Why did you use those words, thee and thou, I asked? Don't you like them? I do, but they're a bit old-fashioned. You strike me as being, how, how can I put it, quite an old-fashioned girl, Georgina. He ran a finger down my cheek. I can change it if you don't like it, sweetheart. The trouble is, I realised, I only wanted him wicked and wolfy. I didn't want this touchy-feely, gooey stuff. And I definitely didn't want the poetry. No, leave it. It's fine. It's fine as it is. But it should be thou lovest, not thou love. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I wished I hadn't. I didn't mean it as a put down. It was just my inglit degree popping out in the wrong place. <laughs> lovest. He sounded utterly crushed. But it's fine as it is. Romantic. Please don't change anything but he was already sitting up and putting on his neatly folded clothes. Mark, you've forgotten. Lovest. The door closed with a quiet click and he was gone. I lay there for a while thinking about the poem. It wasn't just the archaisms that bothered me. It was the flaky metaphor of St George and the dragon and that ugly foreshortened last line like a broken tooth. You'd have thought he could have found a couple of spare syllables to patch it up with. Just then, the front door slammed. It must be my son Ben letting himself in. I sat up and... No, I tried to sit up. But my wrists were still firmly strapped to the headboard. I tugged. Nothing happened. Irritated, I pulled harder. But the Velcro held fast. Mum! Ben called from the kitchen. Hi, Ben. I'm just finishing something off. I'll be with you in a minute. For God's sake, it was only Velcro. But because of the way it was fastened on my wrists, when I tugged, I was just pulling harder onto the join. I tried to squeeze up my hands and slip them through the loops, but there was no slack. I could hear the crickle, crickle of the Velcro hooks under strain. Then the crickling stopped. My thumb joints were still in the way. My wrists were getting sore. My arms were aching. My heart was racing. Don't panic. In, two, three, four. Out, two, three, four. Do you want some tea, Mum? Lovely, thanks. No, 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 it's all right. Just put the kettle on, I'll come down. Next, I tried using my teeth. I found that if I strained and wriggled, I could get my mouth within an inch of my left wrist. Half an inch, but no more. I tried the other side. That was worse. My arms weren't long enough. Or maybe they were too long. I went back to the left side. I strained and strained. If I could stuck out my tongue. I could even touch the Velcro with the tip of it. I just couldn't get it with my teeth. When my shoulder felt as though it was going to break, I gave up, exhausted. I lay back on the pillows and considered my options. Then I realised I had no options. Well, the only option was to call out to Ben for help. That wasn't really an option. I'd rather die. <laughs> then I became aware of another unpleasant sensation. I needed a pee. Kettle's boiled. Right, thanks. I could tell Ben it was an accident. Oh, yeah, I could pretend I'd been trying out an experiment. Playing a game, practicing for a pantomime, like you do. Trouble was, the duvet was still down around my knees, and I was still wearing nothing but the red panties. There was nothing but for it but to go back to the crickling. Each little crickle crickle was a hook opening, I told myself. Just take it slowly. Forget about the bladder. Concentrate on the wrists. Um, I think I'll just leave it there. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Georgie, what a way to leave her. Well, I know. <laughs> but then you see, he walked out on her like that. Men. <laughs> Well, in both um, in Georgie and Mrs Shapiro, you've, you've created these amazing characters that are in, they're very different, 
but they're both quite indefatigable in mm. their own way. Would you say? Would you? Well, they. I think that they realise that they have a lot in common, even though, in a, as you say, they're very different. Um, Mrs. Shapiro is of a determinate age, but she's old, and um, George is in her forties. But they're both outsiders um, in in their way, and they're, they're both on their own, and they both need each other. Um, but in a way, what brings them together is that they also both, each one of them thinks that they can help the other. I mean, you do elderly or older characters so well. I mean, not just in this book, in all of your books, these characters. Why are you so drawn to older characters? Um, well, I'm, I'm older myself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's part of it. And I feel very, you know, I mean, I feel time creeping up. But also, I, I um, used to do a lot of writing for Age Concern. Mm -hmm. And um, I was really very privileged to go and um, meet you know, these, these are these really wonderful, sort of pugnacious, fighting, indefatigable old people and their slightly bewildered and terrified family who is, you know, worrying about gran or granddad going off the rails. And I guess what I, guess what I realised, in a way, was that, that old people are very interesting. They, often don't, they don't, often don't express it very well and they don't know what it is about them that's so interesting, but, but they've lived for such a long time and they've got tales to tell and they've often got secrets, as Mrs Shapiro has. I must say, when, when Mrs Shapiro is in the, the care home, um, I mean, it's such a bleak situation. Yes, it it could, uh, you could really have, have mm. depressed the hell out of us, mm. um, the reader, in, in that, but, but not at all. Everyone in the care home seems to have an amazing spirit, you know, the bonker lady. Mm. Um, you, you really capture that side of, of people. And, and has that been your own experience of getting older and, and your work with older people? I think getting old myself has been surprisingly nice, and you know, and that, that I've sort of found found a new career as a writer in my sixties, which is, you know, which which is quite wonderful, really. And um, I, th I think um, I, th I think a lot of care homes are very bleak, and I, I have certainly visited a lot of care homes which are very bleak, and I, and I think um, you know we we can't run away from that fact, but I, but I think that. Um, I don't know, the people that I've met and the old people I've met in care homes are, are wonder, A, very resilient and B, very forgiving on the whole. And um, I, guess it, I guess it's that sort of combination of um, a resilience and being forgiving. And also they have a huge sense of fun. They, you know, they, they sit there in this dreadful situation, they crack jokes and they laugh. Mm. Um, I just hope I'm going to be like that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure you, you will be. Um, I, I'm just thinking also about, you know, you said that they were both outsiders. Yes. And you tend to write a lot about people who are, who are marginalised, whether mm. it be because of their, their, their sort of status, their immigration status. Mm. Um, is that perhaps because of your own background? Well, I think being an outsider puts you, in a way, in a kind of privileged position because you, um, you know, I was enough of an insider to benefit from the welfare state and grow up in Britain and have this wonderful English language at my disposal, you know, which is a, a really fantastic piece of luck and a, a, a real gift I was given. But at the same time, being an outsider, um, and especially when I was a little kid growing up, you, you become, you, all you want when you're a child is to fit in and to be like everybody else. You know, I didn't want any of that Ukrainian baggage that my parents had. I just wanted to be Yorkshire like the kids I was growing up with. And so you become very watchful, you become very observant, you, you, because you, you're always wanting to imitate people, work out why it is that they're like this. And I think it's a very good, it's a very good starting point. I, th I think a lot of writers in some way are outsiders, um, you know, um, for, for some reason or other, um, they're in a position that where they're on the outside looking in and they become observant. Um, and uh, so in a way, I, I think it's partly sympathy, but partly it's just a habit of observation. And do you think that that's perhaps where this gentle moralism comes from, or, if, or would you agree with that? Um, I think the gentle moralism probably comes from being a child of the 60s and, well, you know, growing up wanting to, to make the world a better place. I know it's not very fashionable to, to do that nowadays, but... Um, but you, but you, you actually represent both sides of the argument, both sides um, in, in a dispute. Yes, I, I do try fairly. to do that. Yes, I, I, mean, I do try to do that. It's very political, but it's very personally political for the characters. Yes, I, I think um, I didn't, certainly in choosing the um, Arab and Israeli theme, I didn't want to say, look, this side are wonderful and that side are terrible. What I really wanted to say is, you know, both lots of people have suffered terribly. And... Um, I, I guess you know um, it's it's this it's this it's the experience of suffering um, that they have in common, and 
I, I was a bit terrified when I was writing this book because they came to a point where I thought, but this problem's insoluble. and I, I can't solve it. And of course, I haven't solved it. I haven't pretended that, that I can give a solution in a book like this. But what I can do is give a personal solution for the characters that they find a way through this um, sort of um, minefield that they're in, which isn't perfect at all. You know, um, it, it, it's, it's a happy ending in a way, but it's actually very far from being a completely happy ending for, for any of the characters involved. Um, and so, um, the, the, the personal, um, the, the political within the personal um, is resolved in a way that the, the wider political isn't. Okay. Um, you, I was going to say here, the reader gets to learn so, so many things about epoxy, resins and the Holocaust yeah. and Danish Jews, all this stuff is really, I mean, and the, the way that you put it forward, it's not, very, it's not preachy at all, it's just there, it just comes through the story, it, it's really lovely, but you've obviously done tons and tons of research. I have. Do you and enjoy that part of the Very work? much, yes. And the thing is that, you know, it's, it's part of the adventure of writing because although I have a kind of, I have a vague idea um, of what I'm going to write about, and I've got some characters, it isn't really until I get into it that I know where the story's going, where the characters are going to take me. I mean, really, I started off not knowing Mrs Shapiro at all. And she's, you know, she's based on an old lady who used to live um, near me in Sheffield. I used to see her walking up and down the road. road. And when she died... All her stuff was taken out of the house and put in the skip. And because, because I'm the sort of person I am, I had a jolly good rummage through the skip. And I, f I, found, um, I found stuff. I, I found out um, who she was and, you know, sort of found out personal things about her. Um, and so in my book, it's, I, I started off with her, but it's the other way around. She's the one who rummages in the skip. Um, but really, in a funny sort of way, th both of those ingredients were there. But that was about 10 to 15 years ago. And I had no idea then that I was going to write about that. I just, it was just something... That, that I noted, and I guess it sort of buries itself um, in, in, in your mind somewhere and, and comes out when you need it. I can't remember what the rest of the question was. <laughs> well, no, I was going to ask was, is, is it sort of, do you know when you start out, I want to cover oh, this, topic, research, this topic, yes. this no, topic, this topic? No, absolutely not. No. No. I, you just I didn't go with Mrs. Shapiro, to, Mrs. Shapiro and the other characters take I didn't in. know about the Danish Jews, um, but once I'd found out about it, I thought, that, I thought goodness, this has to go in. Mm -hmm. I, I, knew, I knew that there was obviously something dreadful going on in the Middle East, and I did want to write about it, because, you know, because it was in the news every day, and I couldn't understand it. I thought, well, you know, why can't they resolve it? Why is it so intractable? And, of course, once I started looking into it, I, I got hooked into the layers of complexity as well and I and I realized how very little I know um, you know having had quite a privileged education growing up in Britain um, and how little I know and how, how um, very much less um, people younger than me know and so um, I, I guess I think if the gentle moralism comes in somewhere it comes in in the sense that if you know things that you have a responsibility to tell them in a way but also then your other responsibility is to, to enter, to be entertaining and give your readers a good time. So well, somehow you have to put these together. You've achieved both uh, very well indeed. Um, I was I was going to ask you um, about the, the the research that you've done and the writing of the book. Has that um, what have you learned about yourself from it? Oh, um, I've learned that writing doesn't get any easier. <laughs> I thought that once I'd written one book and it did well, it would get easier. But actually, every book I write gets harder and harder. And it's partly because I set myself challenges and I want to do something different. And, um, and I guess, you know, maybe it's foolish, but I start out writing about things I don't know about. And I suppose what I've learned about myself is that I'm a very curious person and that, that the process of writing is, is, is very enjoyable. And, and um, I, I guess I gather stories as I go along, which I don't want to share with people. Um, I don't know what else I've learned about myself as a writer. Well, I think, I honestly, I think you've done a tremendous job with this. Thank I you. think it's only fair that we let some people in the audience ask. Uh, I've been hogging you too long. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, does anyone have a question that they would like to ask, Medina? We have a roving mic that we can um, move amongst you with. There's a gentleman in the back there. In, in Two Caravans, right at the very end, we briefly met one of the characters from Tractors. Yes. Um, can we anticipate meeting any of these characters again in future works? Um, well, there, there is a brief appearance in We're All Made of Glue, um, um, one, one of the characters from Two Caravans. In fact, um, 
three of the characters from Two Caravans appear in We're All Made of Glue, but I challenge you to find them. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them is pretty obvious. The other two I challenge you to find. My own editor didn't spot them, which is fine. Uh, because partly, um, I, partly I write for my own entertainment, and it's fun for me to put these little sort of um, fixes and clues and tricks in. And if people don't get them, it's fine. Um, but the fourth book that I've started on, I haven't really... Um, I haven't worked out yet. I would like to, because I think it's quite fun to have a sort of chain of things running through. But I, but I haven't worked out how, if at all, I'm going to do it. It can't be the dog. Well, I better not give that one away. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. There's a lady over here. Oh. <clears throat> it's just well, as well as a fit young man, isn't it? I know. <laughs> Well, the question is, are there any proposals to turn a short history of tractors in Ukrainian into a film? Because I would love to see that. And I know who would play the lead, the, the, the bride who comes over. It's the woman who played Scylla in Coronation Street. Oh! Uh, the reason that I <laughs> think... Has she got the right thing, accent? I'm sure she could learn it. I'm sure she could learn it. She's very clever. Um, it's because I found that book in particular, and Two Caravans as well, they're the only ones I've read so far, very, very visual. Um, as you read them, you can imagine the characters, you can imagine the scenery, the garden, for example, in, mm. t in Tractors. Uh, and uh, I think they're just, um, they're just right for being made into films. But would you like to comment on why you feel you're that kind of a writer, maybe? Well, it's lovely of you to say that. And there is a script now for um, the short history of Tractors in Ukrainian. Um, it's with the money men, basically. It's whether they can raise the finance. Uh, that, that's the stage it's got to. There, there is a script. It's not a final script, but um, they're, 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 they're trying to put, put a sort of financial deal together, which, you know, I guess it's one of the stages you have to go through. Um, it's interesting that you say it's visual, because my, my editor thinks, and I'm inclined to agree, that I'm actually a very smelly writer. And what comes across <laughs> vividly in my books is that you can yep. smell a lot of things, yep. both, both in tractors. Um, and especially in caravans, and, and quite a lot in glue as well. Sometimes I tone it down a bit. I think, I think possibly, oh no, actually, in, in the glue book, there are seven cats. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> can, I, can I ask, um, if you got to choose who would play the parts, who would you choose? I don't know. I, th I think that um, to play Valentina, it would have to be... Um, I think it's a great part and people would love to do it, but I don't know quite who would be the right person. You um, haven't earmarked anybody. I haven't earmarked anybody. Of course, the narrator, Nadia, would be played by Julia Roberts, no doubt about that. <laughs> and and uh, the old man really ought to be play, played by Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. Um, you'd be great. <laughs> but then again, th this is making it all a bit kind of multinational. I've got no idea, is, is the answer. And probably it'll be some, you know, if, if they ever manage to put the money together, it'll be, it'll be a British film. It'll be made on a budget, as they mm. all are. Mm. So um, mm. it'll probably be amateur acting. I'm thinking Julie Won Walters for Mrs. Shapiro? Yes, oh, she would be fantastic, yeah. yes, yeah. she would. We'll have to see if she's available. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly, and there are no film proposals for Two Caravans, but there is an opera that's Ooh. being made. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, can we have a, a next question, please? Oh, there's another lady over there. Yeah, and then one over here. Why did you um, turn to writing so late? I mean, it seems an extraordinary thing to be a writer with such an imagination and not to discover that a lot earlier. Oh, I've been at it all my life. It just, just took me a really long time. I wrote my first poem when I was four, and it took me until I was 57 to get published. <laughs> and so, you know, when people ask me for advice about how to become a writer, I say, I'm actually the worst example. There must be an easier way. Um, I've, always been, um, I've always been at it. I've always been writing this and that and scribbling poetry, plays, um, short stories, two, two complete unfinished, well, well, actually two complete finished novels and, and quite a few unfinished ones. Um, and I guess I just got lucky. I learned a thing or two as I went along. I, you know, I, I did, it was a very long, hard apprenticeship. I, I did learn um, and then I was lucky at the end. Did you know that this one was going to be uh, the one? Well, I knew that if this one wasn't published, there was no point in, in doing anything else um, because I, I, I thought it was good enough to be... Actually, I did think that the previous one was good enough to be published. And now when I look back at it, I can see why it wasn't. 
Um, but also, I, I think that it, would, it wouldn't have taken very much tweaking to make it good enough. Um, but with this one, I thought, well, you know, um, this is as good as I can do. And if it's not good enough, then um, I'm not going to get published. And then I thought, well, you know, I didn't hold any great hopes by then because I've got had my sort of big collection of um, rejection slips. And I thought, well, you know, in this modern age, um, I'll either self-publish or I'll put it on the internet or I'll print out a few copies and circulate them among my friends. And um, in a way, I think it was it was a sense of it was a sense of relaxing, you know. You probably picked up from this, I did an Inglit degree, and it's a terrible thing that hangs over you because you have this idea that you've got to be an author with a capital A. You know, you've got um, Jane Austen and George Eliot and Charles Dickens breathing down your neck, and it's a scary business. And actually, it wasn't until I gave up trying to be a kind of author with a capital A that I could become the author that I am, which is, you know, somebody very different with, with, with my own voice and I guess with my own sense of fun. Uh, there's another lady. Uh, uh, where was it? Where was she? There's one at the front here. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, sorry, can can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know the the passage that you did the first one. It's interesting for me because um, I did obviously the history. I mean, how how hard did how hard did you find it to research after the Second World War? Um, to to find out. Um, in conjunction with the passage that you just read out, um, you know, after the signing of the documents after mm. Nuremberg, mm. I think it. I think it's very. It's a very hard to um, to research. I I talked to people. I read books and I made things up because at the end of the day, it's a novel. Um, it, you know, it's a work of fiction. Um, and one of the things is, is that, that's very hard, which I know from my own family and from family history, is that when you're relying on people's memories in particular, they're, they're very um, unreliable. And, you know, even within my own family, there are different accounts of how things happen. I, you know, when people ask me how old was I when I came to this country, I don't know because my parents have forgotten. I mean, I was around about a year old, but whether it was I was a year or one and a half or just under a year, I don't know. There's, uh, there's lots of things about the past which we don't know. Um, but... Um, it isn't easy, and and the interesting thing is for the bits that I used um, for Wikipedia for um, for the um, Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, you know, this, when, when you use Wikipedia, there's a bit along the top that says this page is disputed, and every time you open it, there's a different version. Um, and so the, there is also some documentation, and there are also books you can re read. And also, I talked to um, to a historian, um, to an Arab historian, who had collected a number of eyewitness accounts. And so all I can say is it wasn't easy, and I did my best. Thank because um, I thank you for that because it's an interesting piece of history and people don't know much about it and it should be well known so thank you. Thank you. Do we have a, another question? A lady in the middle there? Hello, fairly straightforward one because my favourite book of yours is Two Caravans and I just wondered what prompted it and the thing that went into it and, and mm. maybe a bit more em was it to do with empathy with immigrant workers? Well, um, after I'd finished the short history of tractors in Ukrainian, I, I felt that I just told the story of my parents' generation, but I was still very aware that, um, you know, there's a, there's a new wave of immigration from Ukraine about which I really know nothing. And um, in one of those chance encounters, um, somebody gave me this booklet um, called Gone West, Ukrainians at Work in Britain Today. And he said, oh, this will interest you. You're Ukrainian. Um, you know, as I, I get given all kinds of um, Ukraine, and, and I read it, and of course I was completely riveted. And I thought, um, there's a story here. And I also thought, actually, it's my story. I've got to tell it, um, because if I don't tell it, nobody else will, in a way. So there, there, um, there was that, also that sense, sense of responsibility, um, of, of knowing that there was a story, a story there waiting to be told. And in a way, the story isn't just about Ukrainians, it's about Poles, it's about... Um, Malawi, even my daughter works in Malawi, it's about, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the two Chinese girls, because I, I, I used to, a lot of my students used to be Chinese, so I would talk to them about their histories. And what I got from that, really, um, which I'm sure all of you experience, whatever part of Britain that you live in now, is how, how globalised our world has come and how, how very different it is from the time. When I was growing up, I was the only foreigner in most of the schools I went to. Um, now, you know, the... the um, 
the last, when I lived in Leeds, um, I worked out that there were people of 42 nationalities who lived on our street. And that, that's how much the world has changed. And that was actually 20 years ago. It's, it's even more so now. And I guess, I, I guess that in itself w was very interesting. But also, um, in the sense, I didn't, I didn't know that much about it. But I wanted to find out. And, and setting yourself the task of writing a novel is a very, very good way of finding out about something because, because it forces you to do research in quite a focused way. You know, and you follow things, but also you follow where things lead you. For example, I hadn't set out at all to write about cruelty to chickens or in the poultry industry when I wrote Two Caravans. But once I came across it, I then felt, well, I can't not write this. Um, you know, and it is that sense of having, once you know, know a story that has to be told, you have to tell it, really. Um, so, in, in a way, two caravans came from a lot of different sources, but I think, does that answer your question? Thank you. Okay, and we have a gentleman over here. Hi. You said your, uh, the short history of tractors had been translated into 29 languages. I was wondering if one of the languages was Ukrainian and if it is published in Ukraine, and if so, have you heard anything about a response uh, to the book among it, people in Ukraine? It's interesting that you should say that because um, it's actually more than 29. It's sort of low 30s by now, but um, Ukrainian is not among them. Two Caravans is available in Ukrainian, but the short history of tractors isn't. And I have to say that people have very mixed feelings about me um, in Ukraine. Over here, it's a bit different. And la last night, I was at a do with the Scottish um, Ukrainian club. And, and they're a most wonderful and extraordinary bunch of people. And they're, they're, I guess they're, they're um, you know, there are really a lot of couples in which one is Scottish and one is Ukrainian because there are very few of the um, original. Um, there, were, there are one or two of the um, original immigration left, but, but not very many. Um, and, 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 you know, and it was lovely there because it was, it was like going home. It was like being with my own family, and, you know, especially that now that both of my parents are dead. But um, in Ukraine proper, um, on the one hand, people are really glad that, you know, um, Ukrainian, it's on the map. It's, um, everybody's um, aware of it. But on the other hand, you see, Ukraine's a, a, a nation newly emerged on the world stage. They want to be taken seriously. And they're not that happy about the fact that, you know, when people think of Ukraine and Ukrainians, they think about an incontinent old man and, and a woman with enormous boobs. <laughs> so actually, I do get a bit of stick from Ukrainians in, in the Ukrainian media. So it's a kind of double-edged um, double relationship, really. It hasn't been translated into Ukrainian. It's been translated into Russian. And because most Ukrainians can read Russian, and if they want to read it, they can read it. But... What I've found out is that the way that the Ukrainian characters are represented, you know, um, in the, if, if you've read it in English, um, the, the Ukrainian characters are represented speaking sort of slightly comic, broken English. But of course, um, there, the, there, there, the, the serious um, narrative is in Russian, but the comic and slightly ridiculous stuff is all Ukrainian. So then the Ukrainians particularly feel got at because there's this, this sort of age-old hostility between Ukraine and Russia, which unfortunately I've put my foot right in the middle of. It's quite interesting that um, you, know, you, ha you, ha you told that story and and, ha and got the, the big boobs in, and also with Mrs. Shapiro, you know, there's all, there's yes. lo there's lots and lots of comedy. There, there's the yes. the handcuffs and all that. Mm. Do you think that you would be able to tell these stories without that comedy element? Um, and I think it's the same with Two Caravans as well. I think that. Um I, I I wouldn't be able to tell the same stories. Um, I I think that. If somebody told me, oh, read this book, it's great, it's about cruelty to chickens, I said, ah! I, I, re I just really wouldn't want to read it. And, I, and you know, I'm this, I, I hate cruelty and violence. I, I, I don't go to, to see films if I know that they're going to be very violent. And if, if by any chance I do, I just sort of spend my, most of my time ducked down behind, behind the seat. Um, so, so I kind of understand um, people's revulsion at that. But at the same time, you know, it, it, isn't, it isn't kind of, I mean, it isn't that, that terrible things happen in the world. And, and when you see um, the terrible things happen in the world, not that much that's very terrible happens on stage, if you see it. I mean, if you look at, at Shakespeare, you, know, you, you get a pile of corpses um, at the end on, on, on the stage sometimes. But the most awful things are the things which happen not on the stage. And um, I think, in a way, humour, 
I, I don't know whether, whether humour and human have the um, same root, but I like to think that they have, that, that, that our ability to laugh in the, the most dire of circumstances is part of what makes us human. And so the, the two things are actually quite close together. And certainly, I mean, I, I like to enjoy myself when I'm writing. I don't, don't want to make myself thoroughly miserable. So um, I, I, I guess I don't yeah. know if that answers your question. No, it does. I mean, you can certainly sense that mm. spark all the way through, or that, that liveliness. Um, I'm sorry, I can cut up another lady over there. Would you like, like to? Hi. Um, one of my favourite aspects of the Ukrainian's book is the dialogue between the sisters. Is that based on personal experience? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not here, are you? No. Um, well, yes and no. Um, dialogue in books is never the same as dialogue in real life anyway, as I'm sure you know. You, you make things up. Um, yes, of course, we have family rows. And, um, you know, to come back to the point about humour, really, the things which are most awful when you say them at the time are the funniest when you when you remember them a few years later. Um, and and um, I don't know if you've ever, ever had the kind of really disaster holiday where you um, where the roof falls in and you you get washed out to sea and your husband gets drunk and you know all the rest of it and those are the stories you really like telling so in a way the worst rows are the ones that you remember but of course if you just actually wrote down what people said um it it, it, it wouldn't work you know and so in a way they're constructed um but i've had rows yes <laughs> Well, so I know what it's like to have a row. So that's not just a Ukrainian phenomenon then? No. I think everyone who's a sister... No, is it just a Scottish... I know. <laughs> I think everyone who's a sister recognises that relationship very much. Um, do we have any other questions? A gentleman here? Just uh, in the middle there in the blue shirt. Uh, uh, what inspired you to have Dog express himself the way he did? Ah, um... Well, um, this is in two caravans. There's a character called Dog who talks. Um, and I have to say that the, the Dog character got such a lot of stick from the critics. And, you know, even people who liked the book said, but why did you put the dog in? But actually, um, the dog is based on a real dog um, that, that belonged to a friend of mine. And I, I, I go walking very often in the Derbyshire Peak District. And we used to go walking together. And we used to go with this dog. And the dog had a story. It had arrived on my friend's doorstep, a bit like the dog in the novel, and covered with scratches and bleeding and, you know, very dehydrated and starving hungry. And they fed it and gave it water and it became their dog. It wouldn't leave them. And, and you know, they, they, they lived with it for years and they knew that it was a dog with a story. They ha it was a dog with a mystery. But, of course, they couldn't tell us because it was a dog. And we would walk and it would pad along silently behind us. Sometimes it would, you know, rush off after a rabbit or something. And I got so sort of intrigued with wanting to know the story of this dog that in the end of course I had to invent it and then I had to give it a voice in which it could tell its dog because nobody else could enter into the mind of it and also I think I mentioned before that I'm, I'm quite a smelly writer and I don't know a lot about dogs but one of the things I do know is that dogs uh, the sense of smell of a dog is apparently is about 500 times more powerful than our own and that whereas uh, um, we humans perceive the world primarily through our eyes dogs and perceive it primarily through their nose and I thought that was so interesting to try and imagine what the world would be like perceived through the nose of a dog so that's where and I think the other thing when I try to imagine myself into the head of this dog I thought mm, and the, the, the real dog was called Paddy I thought mm, he's not very he's not very bright he's got a kind of limited intelligence but the one thing he really knows is that he's a dog so each of the dog sections begins with I am dog and ends with, I am dog, because that's the one thing he's sure of. And then the rest, you know, he's not good on punctuation, his grammar isn't brilliant, he <laughs> smells a lot, but he does know that he's a dog. Um. <laughs> Any other questions, dog-related or otherwise? <laughs> oh. Well, I was going to ask... There's, there's oh, one sorry. here. Oh, sorry, yes. Is it someone? D are you shy? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Ah, the oh, right. Okay. Here we are. It's quite difficult to see beyond the lights yes. to pick people out. Sorry if we're getting it wrong occasionally. Yes, hello. Hello. You've you've had such an amazing life. You have an amazing life, and um, you seem to have been through a great deal. Would you ever consider writing um, 
your autobiography at some stage or have somebody write about you? I don't think my life's that interesting. I mean, it's sort of quite interesting. Um, and in a way, of course, bits of my life are there in all, all of my books in different ways. Um, the sort of different aspects of my life crop up here and there. So, so in a way, I have written about my life. Um, well, I don't know. Somebody can write about me if, if they like. But, 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 I, but I'd rather write about the things I want to write about um, and to draw on my own experience in a way. I don't know. I think people rush into writing autobiographies a bit too soon and, you know, you find out stuff about people you don't really want to know. <laughs> Can we have just one last quick question? Uh, a gentleman at the front here. Where's our mic? He's done very well running up and down. You have. Um, you, you've explained that you write primarily to entertain yourself, but I wonder also when you're writing about... Um, injustices past mm. and present, such as the chickens and the Arab-Israeli conflict, if you maybe harbour some desire that you might bring about some, some change or, or greater consciousness of these, these issues? Um, well, I think one of the wonderful things about being a writer, and it, it, it means that it's a responsibility as well as a pleasure, is that, is that what you do as a writer is that you give... give people an opportunity to see the world through somebody else's eyes and you say you know look at it from this point of view for you know spend a couple of hours with me and I'll show you what it looks like to be an old lady or to be somebody in a chicken factory or to be um, somebody expelled from a town or somebody in a concentration camp um, and in, in, in a way um, I I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, you know, that, that I want to change the world, but what I do want to do is, is, to, is to give people that experience of, um, you know, I, I, I think people always say, well, you know, how, how, do you, how do you think of these things? How do you imagine them? And I guess what I have is, is, is a very powerful imagination. When I read about um, things which seem unjust or terrible, I always feel as though it's happening to me or as though I've witnessed it. I always, I always sort of... Empathise, and I very often empathise with with both with people on both sides of a dispute. And then I think, you know, that the other thing I know how to do is how to write. So, so in a way, the the project is much more humble than that. It's sort of not to change the world, and certainly not to do things like sort of um, thinking about policies. But but really, just saying, well, you know, look at see it from the, through this person's eyes for a couple of hours, and um, it, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. Okay. Uh, well, I think we've opened up a fantastically interesting dialogue, especially with that last question. And anyway, I hope that you'll all come and join us in the signing tent. But for the moment, ladies and gentlemen, can I just say thank you very much to Marina Levitska. Thank you.